paths in life. Many roads to choose from. But only one of them leads to eternal life. Jesus offers a new way and invites us along to welcome others, to live with integrity, to share the good news that he alone is the way, the truth, and the life. If you have him, you have all you need. There is no other way. Well, this morning we're going to resume our series through the Sermon on the Mount. We're in Matthew. Today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6. The Sermon on the Mount is Matthew 6, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. We're, we're right around halfway through. And uh, <clears throat> in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus presents a new way of thinking, a new way of relating to God, a new way of understanding the role of the law. He presents us with a whole new way of life. And so we've called the series The Way. I want us to pick that up again. We paused for Vacation Bible School. But we're back now in chapter 6. And you'll remember last time we talked about chapter 6, we looked quickly at, at how he talked about giving and fasting and praying. And as we kind of did a summary of the first half of that chapter, I told you I, I wanted to skip over what we've always called the Lord's Prayer because I wanted to come back and slow down and look at it carefully. Well, tonight, this morning, we're going to do just that. Let's look at what we've always called the Lord's Prayer. We're going to think together about the way of prayer, Matthew 6, beginning at verse 7. We've called it the Lord's Prayer, but technically, I, I think that's probably not the best name for it. That phrase, the Lord's Prayer, doesn't show up in Scripture. That's just what developed over time and tradition. And I'm not sure that's the best title for what we have here because it wasn't really a prayer that the Lord prayed. Instead, it was a model. It was an outline. In Luke's account, this prayer is presented in Matthew and in Luke, and in Luke's account, we find out that the disciples asked Jesus, teach us to pray. And he said, okay, here's what a prayer looks like. And he gave them what we call the Lord's Prayer. It's interesting, isn't it, that the disciples who hung out with Jesus every day and saw all the amazing things, that the only thing we have on record that they ever asked him, show us how, they never said, show us how to preach. They never said, show us how to cast out demons. Show us how to heal somebody. Show us how to bring that dude back from the dead. I might have said, you know, that, that walking on water stuff, that's pretty cool. Show me how you did that, you know? But the only thing the disciples ever asked to be shown how was when they said, 
teach us to pray. Because they had seen Jesus go off alone on numerous occasions. I think that it was a very regular habit of his. That he would separate from them and everyone else and go off alone and pray and be with the Lord. They had seen him do that and they had heard him pray. And they knew that that's how he was able to accomplish all that he was able to accomplish because of his relationship with the Father that was summarized in prayer. So they said, teach us to pray. And what we have in Matthew chapter 6 in the, in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount is a model. It's an example. It's an outline for disciples to follow. I want to pick it up just before he gets to that famous prayer. Look with me in verse 7. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they'll be heard for their many words. He's referring to a, a practice among the, the people around them where they would kind of throw up prayers to all these gods Gentiles meaning they weren't Jews, which in that day meant they weren't believers because Jews were the only ones who had a connection to God in that day. And so this, these are the Romans who didn't believe in God, in Yahweh. Instead, they had this whole plethora of gods up there. And so they would just pray and throw out all these names of all these gods, hoping one of them would hit somewhere. And Jesus says, y'all know Yahweh. You don't have to do that. You don't have to throw up a whole bunch of words and just hope that one of the words is the right word at the right time. He said, we pray differently. So don't do as the Gentiles do and just heap up empty phrases. And then look at verse 8. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. You say, well, why should we pray then if God already knows what we need? Well, because you don't pray to inform God, you pray to involve God. You're not praying to tell him something he doesn't know. You're praying to say, God, I know I need your involvement here. And I'm asking you to come and be a part of what, of what we're going through, what we're dealing with. The reason that I wanted to show you verses 7 and 8 before we get to the Lord's Prayer is so that you'd understand the context of the prayer. Because many of us have done exactly opposite of what Jesus intended. In 7 and 8, he says, don't just heap up a bunch of empty words. And yet then we take the prayer that he showed us and we memorize it and we just... Throw it together and heap up a bunch of empty words. It's a poem that we now know. And we go through the poem once in a while to make us feel better. We've got to be really careful with the Lord's Prayer because we're so familiar with it that it's very easy to just throw the words up instead of speaking them from our heart, from our head. It's very easy to use them as words instead of communication with God. And so remember that Jesus never originally intended, although it's, there's nothing wrong with memorizing it, I think that's, there's power there, but he never intended it to be 
a memorized prayer that we would just throw back into the conversation. He intended it to be a model. Learn how to pray. Here's an outline you follow. Now, you pray your words that follow this model. So let's look at it very carefully. We don't have a formal outline this morning. We're just going to go phrase by phrase and learn to pray. Verse 9, pray then like this. See, even in his introduction, even in his, his beginning phrase there, it's not pray these words, it is pray like this. Here's an example. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. It's significant that he begins with our Father. Because I'm about to offend some of you and I'm kind of sorry, but not really. Not everyone can call God Father. Now, I know that sounds offensive. I know that goes against everything we've, been, we've, we've heard and been taught. That everyone is a child of God. That's just not true. Everyone is a creation of God. God intimately and purposefully created every human life. But not everyone can claim sonship or daughterhood. Because what happens is when you're born, you're born into the world. You're born a physical birth into the world. But Jesus said that's not enough. You've got to be born again. Because inside your spirit is not alive when you're born. You're, you're, you're a physical being. But, but there's an inside part of you, your soul, that has yet to be awakened. And when the Holy Spirit comes into your life and wakes up that soul within and gives you the ability to trust in Jesus, that's when you finally say, I believe Jesus, come into my life. Change me and make me new. And it is at that moment that you're born again. Paul says that we become new creatures. The old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. He goes on to teach us that it is then that we are adopted into God's family. Now, I'm a child of God. I'm not his child because he created me. I'm his child because he enabled me to trust in him, and I did that. I believe that Jesus is who he said he is, and I believe that God has provided a way for me to be made right with him. It is when I'm adopted into his family that now I can say, Our Father... Now I can call upon not just my Creator, but my Heavenly Father, the one who loves me, the one who knows me better than I know myself. And I also think it's significant that Jesus chose not to use first-person singular. He didn't say, my Father in Heaven, but He says, our Father. There is a connection in this model prayer that all of God's children can together 
say, we know our Father, our Father in heaven. Recognizing that God is above us, beyond us, and greater than us, if he were not, there would be no purpose in prayer. But he is the one in heaven. He is the one beyond us. In Scripture, that word heaven is used in at least three different ways. First, we talk about the heavens. The first is, is the sky, or what we see during the day. It's where the birds fly. You can only see that heaven because of the sun. You can only see that by day. But then there are those heavens that we can only see at night. We think of as space beyond our atmosphere. It is at night that we can see the sun, and, or no, we can see the moon and the stars and the planets and all the beautiful things out there. It is that heaven that we can only see at night. And then beyond those heavens is the dwelling place of God. That place that we can only see by faith. Paul describes all of those. He, he says that, that when he had kind of a, a, a death experience, an out-of-body kind of an experience, he says that I went to the third heaven. The first one we see by day, the second we see by night, the third we see by faith. And we say, our Father of the heavens the one who is above all, beyond all, the one who sustains all, who holds all, who created all, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. When's the last time you talked to your buddy at work about something that was hallowed? As far as I know, this is the only time we ever use that word when we're praying this prayer. But you can tell by the context what it means. Holy sacred, different from all others, special, unique. It is a word that means to be made sanctified or to be made holy. Have you ever been to the National Cemetery in Arlington? When you're there, you know you're on sacred ground. It has been made sacred ground. There's an awe and a reverence. Here, Jesus teaches us to pray, Our Father, the one who loves us, and yet he is our Father, and yet he is the Father in heaven, the one who sustains and created all and holds all together. Our Father, the one who connects to us personally, is also the great God of all that exists. Holy, sacred is your very name because of how great our God is. One of the things that I want you to notice this morning as we go through the sermon, go through the, the prayer, the first half of the prayer is all about God. He begins, the whole first half is all about God. Then the last half is about us. I think that sets our priority in prayer. Most of us get that backwards. God, give me. God, help me. God, please. God, Oh, and by the way, 
Thank you, God, for everything. We love you. You're awesome. Amen. Jesus' model sets our priorities right. He sets our focus right. It's really about God, Father, Creator, Sustainer, the one who is holy, separate, different from all others. Hallowed, holy is your very name. And then the request. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. What does it take to make a kingdom? Do you have to have certain area, certain space, a certain number of miles in a country for it to be a kingdom? Or do you have to have a certain number of people to form a kingdom? What it takes to have a kingdom is a sovereign and a subject, is a king and someone to rule, and you can have a kingdom. What are we saying when we say, thy kingdom come? I do think there's a look forward to that day that he will establish his kingdom on earth, and that will lead then to an eternal kingdom, absolutely. But I think he is also teaching us to pray, thy kingdom come right now. I want to recognize you as my king, and I will be your subject. Be the king of my life. Sit on the throne of my heart. We begin the prayer by recognizing who he is, Father, sustainer, creator of all the heavens. You have a holy and special and sacred name. Therefore, based on who you are, would you be my king? So often we make our own decisions and find our own way. We lead our own lives and somewhere along the way we might ask God to bless our efforts. Jesus teaches us there's another way. Instead of making our own decisions and going our own directions, we can begin with Him, say, because of who you are, be my King. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Your will. See, most of us often treat prayer, I know we would never say this out loud, but we treat prayer as if we think prayer is about telling God what we want and hoping he'll give it to us. Jesus teaches us another way. Instead of telling God what we, what we want, it is connecting with him to the degree that we learn what he wants. Your will be done. I want what I want, but what I want more than what I want is what you want. Your will be done in my life. Once we have established who we are in relation to him, who he is, we pray your kingdom come in my life, your will be done. I want what you want on earth just like it is in heaven. I want to experience what it is to to live my life under your rule, your reign, your power. My life now becomes a part of, of your reign on earth just like it is in heaven. Once all of that is established, now and only now am I ready to present to him my requests.
And so he begins, give us this day our daily bread. Give us this day what we need for this day. Give us this day our daily bread. Not give me now what I'm going to need for the next week. Why? Because then I'll have to pray the rest of the week. Give me now what I need for this day. I think that when he taught the disciples, they most likely would have connected, would have thought about when Moses was leading the the people through the wilderness. And you remember they, they were getting hungry. And they said, God, give us food. And so God sent manna, that special kind of bread. It was a unique kind of bread. But he would send that bread to them, but it was each day. And he taught them, you can't take that bread and save it because when you save it, it goes bad overnight. He was teaching them to depend on him every day. And so we now learn, give us this day our daily bread. Take care of me today, God. Provide my needs I depend on him, depend on you, God, for food, for shelter, for clothing, whatever I need this day. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts. Notice that the prayer includes present, past, and future. Present, Give us this day what we need right now. Past, forgive us our debts. Some of you learned the word trespasses there. Trespass is when somebody says, here's a boundary, don't cross the boundary, and we go, nope. God says, here's the rules, here's the boundaries, don't cross them, and we said, oh, we'll do it our way, thanks. You call it trespasses, you call it debts, the word is sin. And every one of us have crossed that boundary. Every one of us has sinned. Some of us within the last 10 minutes. There is sin in our lives, always. And here Jesus teaches us to pray in humility. Forgive us our debts. Forgive us our sins. We acknowledge that we have sin by praying about it. And we ask him to forgive, recognizing our need for his grace. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Because I have received forgiveness that changed me, and now I am becoming like my heavenly Father, and now I can forgive others. The new me, changed by God and His forgiveness, is able to share that forgiveness with others. Uh, Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We talked about our present, looked at our past, and now he prays about our future. Lead us, not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Lead us, God. That's the heart of that phrase. Some people get hung up on the word temptation. Lead us not into temptation. Does that mean if I don't pray that, that God's going to lead me into temptation? No, James says God never does that. 
the essence of this phrase is in the word lead us. We're saying, God, if I go by myself, I'm going to wind up in temptation and trouble. But I want to follow you instead, so lead us. Not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. If I go my way, I'm going to wind up hanging out with him, and I don't want to. Lead us. Not into temptation, but deliver us from that evil one. And then you'll notice that some versions include that last glorious benediction. Some don't. And there's a reason for that. It says yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. We don't have any of the originals of the original documents where the Bible was written. They don't exist anymore. What we have are handwritten copies of the originals. And some of those early manuscripts include that glorious benediction and some don't. So some of our translations include it and some don't. Regardless of whether it shows up in that text, by the way, if it doesn't, you probably do have a footnote at the bottom of the page showing you about it. Whether it shows up in your translation or your version or not, the concept is completely biblical and it is absolutely appropriate for us to include it when we pray. We say, the reason I'm praying, God, focused on you first, then focused on my present, my past, and my future. The reason I do these things is because you, to you, is the glory, the power, the kingdom forever. We start with him. We end with him. Lord, teach us to pray. 